You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. It's just gone 11 minutes past the midday mark here in South Africa and 11 minutes past 11 a.m. there in London where our two guests are joining us this morning. Today we're chatting to Eric Prizkans, and I really hope I pronounced it correctly, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Risk and Assurance Group, which is an international association of telecoms professionals concerned with risk management and business assurance. He was also the editor of commsrisk.com, a website that has presented news and opinions about telecoms for over a decade. Also in London, we're joined by Anthony Sani, who was the executive for Group Revenue Assurance and Fraud Management at one of South Africa's two biggest um, cell phone networks, in fact, the biggest cell phone network in Africa. And previous to that, he was the general manager of Revenue Assurance and Fraud Management at that same group. Um, Eric, welcome to the show. Hello there, Chad. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon, Chad. Thank you for, for having us. Um, Anthony, it would be remiss of me as a South African not to ask you as a fellow South African um, during this hectic time of, of COVID-19. We're in shutdown. Uh, I'm locked down here in South Africa. What's it like in London? Yeah, we're in, uh, we've been in lockdown for a week now. Um, you know, so it's um, quite similar, I think, in terms of the changes that uh, you've seen to daily life. Um, it's very quiet. Um, obviously, we're uh, all watching um, very closely to see how things progress uh, in terms of uh, the infection, and, and hopefully we can uh, tackle it successfully. Um, you know, in both the UK and South Africa, um, you know, with a lot of family back in South Africa, I'm watching things closely there as well. So. Uh, yeah, but very hopeful. Eric, you visited South Africa recently. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet you at the um, RAG conference held here in Johannesburg. Um, your thoughts on South Africa with regards to our response to this particular virus? We're now sitting on 1,280 confirmed cases. We're sitting on two confirmed deaths. And only this weekend did we see it spread into our townships, which is a very great concern for us considering our informal settlements. Your thoughts um, regarding South Africa and where you are in Europe? Well, I think that, you know, to be fair, the best job is possible is being done, but it's so difficult to predict and understand how this disease is spreading. Uh, we think that we know all about this disease because it's always in the news all the time, but actually scientists still don't know as much as they'd like to know about the rates of infection, how many people have it. Obviously, you will be following the best advice possible about social distancing, but at this point in time, so much depends upon the behavior of individuals, and it's crucial that the message goes out to individuals that they take sensible steps to protect themselves. That's the most important thing at this point in time. It's very scary. Um, apparently, fear has now gripped one of our Cape Town townships, Kailicha, where there was a confirmed case over the weekend. There's five confirmed cases in Mitchell's Plain, and it's very difficult in respect of social distancing within our informal settlements in our townships due to spatial planning, which is an unfortunate legacy of apartheid, where people live literally on top of one another. So so we're living in fear. We, we're surprised that the numbers are still so low. We don't know if that's because of um, testing. We, we, we don't know whether the, the deaths may be far higher because, as many people know, South Africa is living with the highest um, percentage per capita in the world of HIV-positive people, which obviously has lowered their immune systems considerably. We also have a very high rate of tuberculosis. And being a, a subtropical climate, we have a lot of malaria. So we're obviously exceptionally worried, especially when looking at countries such as Italy, such as Spain, such as yourselves in England, and, of course, in America, where New York's become an absolute 
epicenter. So, Eric, with your international network through RAG, um, what are the kind of concerns you're hearing from your, your colleagues worldwide? Well, I mean, just to put this into context, though, just a little bit, Chad, before we go too much further on, in a situation like this, speaking as a professional risk manager, this is the type of situation where a lot of assumptions about our daily ordinary routines are brought into sharp relief. So you talk about, and you're quite right to point out the issues the way you have, where people are living in close proximity to each other. But, you know, one that also has very severe problems these days with certain cities in the world where people tend to live in high-rise towers. How do they get from where they are to the ground floor? They use the elevator. So the, this can really challenge a lot of our assumptions about how we live our lives. And all, all sorts of things can become seen as risks, which previously we took for granted. What we need more than anything in a moment of crisis is as much as possible to engage in calm reflection about how we adapt to the changing circumstances. So yes, it is, yes, it is an area at a point in time where people are stressed, people are tense, but we are also seeing all around the world a great deal of imagination, a great deal of innovation as people come together. And there can be positives that can also come out of a terrible experience like this. The positive of communities coming up with new solutions, new ways of living, new ways of helping each other. So I think you're absolutely right, Chad, to focus on the extent to which this global crisis is a great danger to everybody. But I'd also like to inject an air of optimism from what I'm hearing about the world, businesses worldwide, individuals worldwide, communities, they're really finding new ways to cooperate and work and deal with this crisis. So let's also talk about the positives as well in this situation. Anthony, coming from South Africa, um, which we, we, we need to understand is, a, is an emerging economy where most of our population does live in poverty. We are, a, in, in many instances, a third-world country living side-by-side side with, with first-world technology, etc. Are you happy as, as somebody who's viewing South Africa from a remote perspective as a South African with the steps that our President Ramaphosa has taken in respect of this, of this um, crisis? Well, I think leadership is is absolutely vital um, in a crisis like this. Um, you know, as Eric said, I don't think there's a country globally that would have been able to to predict um, or to to manage um, and build capacity to manage a, a situation like this. So I think um, we're all in uncharted territory as far as um, risk planning is concerned. Uh, I think the two things that really stand out for me as being critical to success in fighting this virus is strong leadership um, and collaboration um, between um, various government uh, bodies as well as between countries. And I think looking, reflecting on the, the situation in South Africa, um, you know, I think we've long the South Africans been critical of, of government uh, and, and the actions or the the timing of actions that, that have been taken in the past. But I think really if you if you look through the lens, through an international lens, um, you know, the president and, and government in South Africa have acted extremely quickly to put in place measures um, that would restrict movement and, and therefore spread the disease. And I think at a time of crisis that really has stood out across um, the entire population as, a, as an example of really strong leadership. And I, and I think more so than in many uh, Western countries where 
there has been a level of denialism um, for the first few weeks um, of the crisis, which have been absolutely critical in would have been critical in um, really preventing movement um, of people and therefore the the spread of uh, the virus. So, you know, I think looking back at uh, looking at the situation from an outsider point of view, and I, I think government has really reacted um, very well. I think, and, and I think the, the collaboration um, is a very critical partner. So, you know, how organizations, uh, whether they be NGOs, whether they be government organizations, whether they be uh, pharmaceutical companies, collaborate. Uh, across borders and within countries is going to be critical to to defeating this. Well, I appreciate the the input that you're giving to us from both of your sides, um, specifically regarding the fact that this wasn't what our conversation was set to be about. Um, We've reached the the, the 20 past 12 mark in the show, so we're going to take a quick ad break. And when we come come back, we're going to talk specifically um, relating to the role that Aurelian Solutions and the Risk and Assurance Group play in terms of countering international um, telecommunication fraud. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief live from Johannesburg. It's now 21 minutes past the midday mark, and in London, where my two guests are, it is now 21 minutes past 11 in the morning. Um, Anthony, you, you're part of an organization called Aurelian Solutions, and I believe you work very closely um, with Eric's organization, RAG. Tell us a little bit about the background of Aurelian Solutions, considering your background in, in risk and fraud mitigation. So, Chad, Aurelian Solutions is, is an international business. We're located um, in the UK, but we actually still have our development and technical resources uh, in South Africa. Um, and so we, um, as an organization, um, that has had its history in, in uh, telecommunications uh, assurance and risk, um, have seen that the way in which organizations uh, manage fraud and manage risk uh, on behalf of their customers, um, is, there were some, certainly opportunities to, to improve there. Um, we founded the business in 2018 um, and Prior to that, as, as you mentioned previously, I was a Group Revenue Assurance and Fraud uh, Executive at, at MTN Group looking after their 23 telecommunications businesses across uh, Africa and the Middle East. Prior to that, I'd worked internationally and, and has worked for many years with Eric uh, in different organizations and in different capacities. And um, the Risk and Assurance Group um, are really an organization that have really led the way in collaborating um, across the industry to help organizations better manage risk and better manage fraud. We, When we started Aurelian Solutions, we were very keen to um, help the industry better manage fraud. And one of the, uh, the areas that we felt was really important in tackling the global fraud problem was how information and, or intelligence regarding fraud is shared between uh, telecommunications companies, which in the past has been quite a, um, a difficult process uh, that's involved lots of middlemen and, and has been quite inefficient. Um, and one of the products that we, we brought to market was blockchain technology, which um, as a technology is a very good technology for sharing of information in a secure way. 
Uh, and the collaborate, the discussions with the risk and assurance group, uh, back in late 2018, um, started around how do we provide a solution to the industry to help the industry better manage fraud and better protect their customers because ultimately, uh, customers of telecommunication companies are generally the ones that suffer the most from fraud that's perpetrated on their network. So, uh, the, that's where the project started, and um, we we worked with uh, a number of telecommunications companies and, and RAG in uh, 2019 to to build a prototype, a working prototype for how information is shared between um, those organisations, which was very successful. And, and I'm very pleased to say that we launched the um, the first version of the um, the project. Um, into production uh, in early 2020, and, and the success has been great so far. Eric, um, I met you in Johannesburg a couple of months ago, and you recently had a, a conference in India. Um, at the conference I attended, I, I was very fortunate to be part of a panel um, that discussed um, different issues, specifically crime and organized crime that's facing um, industry as a whole. What do you find in terms of these conferences is coming out as a worldwide phenomena when it comes to, to fraud in the telecoms environment? Well, there's a really straightforward pattern, Chad, actually. Um, if you think about the trends over the decades, what we've seen from decade to decade is a reduction in the cost of an international phone call. And if you think about what that means in terms of the possibility for defrauding the average phone user, what it means is that it's much cheaper than it's ever been before for criminals in another country to try to rip you off because they're not paying the same rates that they used to pay in order to make a call. Now, think about your email spam box for a moment. We've known for many decades that email attracts a lot of spam and a lot of fraudsters are using emails to try and trick you. And the reason they can send thousands, millions of emails is because they're not paying anything to send those emails to you. As voice calls become increasingly cheap, what happens is their fraudsters are going to start using voice calls and SMS messages and other forms of communication to try to trick the unwary, to try to take advantage of average people who just assume that when somebody's phoning them, it's a genuine phone call from somebody that they know or has a real reason to speak to them. That's been the dominant trend over the last few years. And as a result, it really increases the duty of care that telcos have towards their customers. Crimes, frauds that previously just simply wouldn't have been that profitable for organized criminals. Now we're seeing a huge rise in that. And, for example, one of those that we've seen an enormous spike in the amount of fraud worldwide is the one that we particularly want to talk about today, Wangiri fraud, the kind of fraud where a customer is tricked into dialing back to an expensive number. They see a missed call on their phone. They wonder who it's from. They call back, and as soon as they dial back, that's when they're starting to pay money over to the fraudster because they didn't realize that there was no reason behind the call except to get them to dial it because the fraudster profit that way. So that's a great example of how the problem of spam has become an issue for many, many people worldwide in a way that wouldn't have been imaginable 10 years ago. The Wangiri fraud sounds fascinating. I want, to, I want to elaborate on it a little bit later in the show. But while we're on the topic, can we expect that particular fraud 
to be expanded upon? Can we see an influx in that during this time where we see internationally family members are trying to contact one another to see how they're doing during this crisis? Exactly. I mean, fraudsters thrive on people relying upon their gut instincts, their intuition to make a snap decision rather than being thoughtful about what they're doing. So at a moment of crisis, at a moment of heightened tension, fraudsters will exploit thoroughly. And in fact, we've actually seen the industry seeing a very significant rise in scams related to coronavirus, for example. So we're seeing a big rise in, say, SMS messages. They're asking people to immediately dial back, immediately respond, because they're offering something like surgical masks or some equipment, or they're warning people that if they don't respond immediately, they're going to miss out on some important healthcare information. It's all fraudsters taking advantage of the heightened emotions at this point in time. Very, very scary indeed. We've reached the halfway point in the show. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to chat to Anthony and Eric more about the scams that you as the consumer need to look out for, specifically relating to your cell phone. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Concentrate on that during this very trying time where the world seems to be coming together as one. And remember, if you're alone during this during this lockdown, you're more than welcome to contact our counsellors in our call centre on 0800 24 Back to the topic at hand, um, I'm chatting to Anthony Sani and Eric Priscons regarding telecom fraud, and that's fraud specifically relating to cell phones. So, Anthony, early on, Eric mentioned a specific type of fraud. I think he called it Wangiri. Tell us a little bit more about that, and has it impacted on South Africans? So Wangiri fraud has been around for, for some time, actually. Um, it's a, um, a translation of in, – in, uh, it's a Japanese term, which in uh, translated means one-ring uh, scam. So I think most of us will have – received calls from international numbers um, that are missed calls. So you pick up your phone, uh, you see a number um, that is an international number, and instinctively as, an, as uh, someone receiving a call from uh, an international number, one might be tempted to, to, dial, to ring uh, back. Um, now, fraudsters prey on uh, that instinctive response that humans have to respond to whether it's an email or, or a, a phone call. Um, what customers receiving these calls don't realize is by when they do uh, reply to that call, they will be charged a premium rate uh, for connecting that call. Uh, and they won't realize it until they've received their bill at the end of the month and they will um, see on the bill a premium rate charge that gets um, levied to them and charged to them for responding to it unwittingly. Now, fraudsters um, essentially will receive a share of that premium rate revenue. So they will uh, agree with the owner of the number in that foreign country that the revenues received for that call will be shared with them. So um, with increased automation, the number of calls that are being made to people internationally unwittingly has increased significantly. Um, and whilst most of us will uh, be cautious about responding to a number that uh, perhaps you, you don't recognize or some, that you haven't had a, uh, it's not a, a shared or saved contact, um, a lot of people will respond. And therefore, syndicates 
see this as an easy way of um, making money. Um, and it's also a, a way of monies being moved internationally. So money laundering uh, is another um, reason why these calls are being made to move money um, illegally from one country to another. So for, for those of us that um, receive these calls, we may not realize that by responding to the calls that will be charged a premium rate. And this is, a, as I said, a problem that's been around for many years. And um, the sophistication of these methods has increased a lot um, over time, which makes it quite difficult for telecommunications companies to proactively manage the problem and, and uh, protect customers. Eric, let's talk about the actual monetary figures um, that have been collated over the years by your organization. What is it? What has it cost telecommunication companies or consumers? And what would it cost an average consumer if they had to be defrauded in such a manner? Well, the cost to an individual consumer can be enormously high because the fraudsters are using all sorts of tricks to keep you on the line once they fooled you into making a call. One of the great examples of the tricks that they've developed over the last few years is that uh, they might play you a recording saying that you've won a prize or something or other, and they just keep you hanging on and hanging on and hanging on uh, to the end of that recording as long as possible in the hopes that you'll keep on listening and keep on racking up a bills that can run into hundreds or even thousands of dollars at times. Um, another trick that they play is that they may record the, record the words that you're saying to them and then play it back to you. They may have artificial intelligence that makes it seem like there's somebody talking to you on the other side of the phone, but it's actually talking to a machine, not a human being. So no one really understands what you're talking about. They're just holding you on the line for as long as possible. So the cost to consumers is enormous. And one of the difficulties we have as an industry is tracking, monitoring the cost to consumers can be extremely difficult. If you think about it, we're talking about an industry where there are thousands of telcos worldwide. Collating that data is very difficult because not everybody is going to share information and not everybody recognizes that these frauds have taken place because from the telco's perspective, it looks like somebody's just made a phone call. They're not listening in to what you're talking about. But industry estimates suggest that, and when we think about telecommunications, bear in mind that it's a globally a $1.7 trillion industry. Global estimates seem to suggest that fraud of this type ranges on average between 1% or 2% of total global revenue. So we're talking about billions of dollars. Difficult to estimate, but billions of dollars being earned by some very sophisticated organized criminals. We all know that organized criminals feature in other areas as well. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about other crimes impacting on the telecommunications industry. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg. It's now 12.45 p.m. here and in London where our guests are sitting at 11.45 a.m. Um, Anthony, coming from South Africa, um, you you know the, the, the major issue we have. We've seen the major campaigns relating to battery theft from cell towers. And these batteries are incredibly important, especially considering load shedding, etc. That, again, is an organized crime and is impacting on the cost of the service to consumers. Is this 
merely a South African phenomenon? Are we seeing it worldwide? And what other crimes are happening in South Africa in the telecommunications industry? I think the, the, the issue of battery theft is much broader than um, just South Africa, um, although I, I would say that it, it obviously impacts networks that are more reliant on battery technology, uh, where, for example, primary um, power is, is a problem. But So battery theft, I think, is, is a big uh, issue uh, across most uh, developing economies. Now, it may not be batteries in some cases in uh, other African uh, countries, uh, diesel theft was a, a major issue because generators were powering cell sites um, as a secondary source source of power. So the theft of um, those sources of power, whether that be diesel or battery, was costing and is still costing telecommunications operators uh, millions of, of, of rands uh, on a daily basis. It is a, a major problem. Uh, and it affects people individually when they can't use the cell phone service because uh, the towers are unavailable. But, you know, if we think about how uh, the fundamental nature of telecommunications and, and the, the role that it plays in our lives, um, you know, we no longer are just using um, our telephones for, our mobile telephones for uh, voice calls. You know, we use it to, to communicate. We use it to uh, for banking purposes. We, we use our phones for, for payment purposes. So, uh, cell phones have become a fundamental part of our lives, um, and the amount of information that now is held and processed on cell phones um, is significantly greater than it, it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and fraudsters are aware of that. So um, the, the proliferation of fraud and crime um, in the cell phone industry uh, is no longer just restricted to um, voice calls. So examples of that are um, SIM swap fraud. Now, if you think about um, SIM swap fraud where a criminal um, syndicate would be able to um, uh, undertake a SIM swap um, and by doing that, take hold of the number that, that you own, um, they are then able to receive uh, passcodes, so for one-time pins from um, your bank uh, when with regards to logging on. And um, so the interrelatedness uh, of, of fraud between what was previously just a telecommunications industry is now spreading into other areas. So SIM swap fraud is a means with which criminals now use to defraud you from a banking perspective. And, and that's a major issue globally. Um, so the identity theft um Relating to cell phones is uh, is something that is affecting global telecommunications organisations and subscribers quite uh, significantly. Eric, for you as as somebody that's a specialist in this field and is operating on a global scale, conferencing and interacting with the role players worldwide, be it state law enforcement agencies or the private sector, in particular the fraud and risk mitigation specialists from the organizations. What is the biggest fear, perhaps, that's facing the industry at this point in time? And what, perhaps, is the biggest emerging threat in respect of, of fraud and risk? Well, the, the fear is that worldwide, as I said before, the cost of calls is going down, so your revenues are declining. But at the same time, you're becoming a conduit for a lot more economic activity. So 
to take a great example uh, for African telcos, we've seen a tremendous portion of some African economies go online and be executed via services such as mobile money. So the responsibility for the telco has never been greater, just at the same point in time when its revenues are in decline. So managing the risks, managing the burden has never been more intense for telcos. Many, many people are dependent upon telcos, even if not really paying for a service. They may be using, say, a WhatsApp or some voice over IP service. They may be using apps on their phone or SMS messages to execute financial transactions. Identifying correctly, knowing as Tony mentioned his example there of the example of SimSwap, knowing that you're dealing with the real person and not an imposter, a criminal who's taken over their identity, has never been more important in time. And that then brings us to a whole bunch of other related issues related to privacy, the burden of making people register their sims and their identity, the differences in, say, the Western world and some other countries in terms of the sensitivities about whether it's okay to expect people to hand over information and even deliver biometric information, perhaps provide fingerprints in order to register for a SIM card. There's a lot of pressure right now on governments and telcos worldwide to square the circle in terms of how you know you're really dealing with somebody remotely who says that they're the person that they are without at the same time starting to infringe their privacy and their rights to go about their life without being affected. That's a very difficult problem, and no single country, no countries have, like, taken a point of view that everybody else has followed. You'll see very different approaches in different parts of the world. So it's a difficult time at this point in time to say what the trends are going to be over time. But, of course, coronavirus, coming back to the current crisis, what we're seeing at this point in time, is that a lot more information is being gathered about people, such as where they are, their location, and who they've come into contact with because their telephone company, the telephone companies are being asked by the state to provide that information in order to deal with the crisis and try to work out transmission of disease from person to person. So a whole bunch of ethical issues and a whole, and a whole series of technical, technological questions about how far we go with technology. No one country can say that they've got it right. We're really seeing a variety of approaches in different parts of the world. Anthony, some quick tips for our South African listeners, um, as well as our international listeners. What should they be looking out for, and how best can they protect themselves against telecommunication-type fraud? Well, I think being um, aware is is very important, and um, telecommunications companies uh, do provide a lot of information um, to customers about the types of fraud. So I think it's really important that people become aware and invest time in understanding the scenarios that might be indicators of uh, fraud. So, for example, when you receive a call from an international number, um, be aware that it may be a, a, a scamster that's trying to defraud you. Um, when you notice that there is a disruption to your service, um, get in touch with your, your uh, network operator to find out if there's a problem or if there has been a SIM swap. So I think being aware is, is really important. The second thing is communicating um, issues that you may have or, or frauds that you may be aware of to your network provider is absolutely key. And that's really the crux of the project um, that we've undertaken with RAG and 
uh, a number of global telcos, which is about how do we pool intelligence um, in order to more proactively manage fraud or allow telcos to pro- uh, protect their customers better. So um, making sure that as, as you, your listeners uh, keep the, their telcos aware of any frauds that they may be experiencing, I think is an absolutely vital part of um, pooling that intelligence and making uh, telcos more able to deal with uh, issues as they uh, arise. Eric, in closing, if our listeners need to find out more information about your organization and what is happening internationally in terms of um, trying to combat these frauds, where should they be looking um, and where can they find you on the World Wide Net? Well, they're very welcome to check out all the transparent information at riskandassurancegroup.org, the website for the Risk and Assurance Group. There's lots of uh, useful information there for people. But I'd also, of course, recommend my other publication, commsrisk.com. There you'll find information every single day about new scams, new frauds, what the industry is doing about them. Lots of uh, deep insights into what's happening in the industry relevant to people all around the world. So those are both two great resources there for your listeners. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, to you as well, the two of you um, in England, stay safe. And, um, yes, I look forward to chatting once this pandemic is over. And uh, our listeners need to, to obviously have a look at the Risk and Assurance Group as well as um, Aurelian and find out more about what's going on. To our listeners out there, you've been listening to Confidential Brief live from Johannesburg as well as London today. If you want to listen to the show again or if you want to recommend it to any of your friends, it will be uploaded as a podcast to the High FM website tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe out there. And to our guests in London, thank you so much and stay safe. Goodbye.